So what are you saying, that we're wrong? Oh, everybody's wrong but you. You know, this is like that Twilight Zone where the guy wakes up and he's the same and everybody else is different. <laughs> Which one? They were all like that. <laughs> not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. Your next stop, the Twilight Zone. I've often said that the Twilight Zone will drop an element of the unexplained into the life of a person like a pebble into a pond then we the audience will sit back and watch the ripples so that element of the unexplained can be an item like a most unusual camera or a kind of stopwatch but sometimes it's a person gaining an ability like the immortality of Walter Bedecker in Escape Clause or Hector Poole gaining the ability to read minds in A Penny For Your Thoughts. But what if the Twilight Zone was to take something away instead? Something that we take for granted to such a massive degree that we don't even think about it as something that could be taken away. And that's exactly what happens when we meet tonight's traveller in the fifth dimension, David Gurney, who wakes up after a night on the town to find that his wife doesn't recognize him. What's the matter with you? Are you sick or something? Who are you? What? Who are you? What are you doing in my bedroom? You mean this isn't the YMCA? Honey, will you knock it off? I'm late. Now just tell me where you put the razor. Darling, I am in no mood for jokes. You get out of here. Wilma. Wilma! How do you know my name? It's on the marriage certificate, remember? Oh, mister, I've never seen you before in all my life. So tonight we'll witness a man desperately struggling to prove his identity. But has the world changed around him? Or has he himself changed? Let's find out when we try to identify person or persons unknown. Cameo of a man who has just lost his most valuable possession. He doesn't know about the loss yet. In fact, he doesn't even know about the possession. Because like most people, David Gurney has never really thought about the matter of his identity. But he's going to be thinking a great deal about it from now on. Because that is what he's lost. And his search for it is going to take him into the darkest corners of the Twilight Zone. First broadcast on the 23rd of March, 1963. Written by Charles Beaumont and directed by John Brahm. I've often said of Charles Beaumont that he was the master of writing stories where the unexplained is acting on someone for a reason that we don't understand. And in this case, as is often the case, only that person knows that it's actually happening. And one of the finest examples of that in The Twilight Zone is Shadow Play, which coincidentally, or perhaps not, was the previous Twilight Zone that John Brom directed before this one, and in the future we'll see four more Twilight Zone episodes directed by him. 
So Rod Sailing's open a narration, it's serious, it's functional, it's appropriate, no real bells and whistles on this one, it kind of just sticks to the story at hand. So not a great deal to comment on here, and to be honest, not a great deal to comment on here seems to be a pretty decent approximation as to what's written about this episode by our main Twilight Zone commentators. Mark Zickery gives it a short, positive review in the Twilight Zone Companion, Steve Rubin in the Twilight Zone Encyclopedia just lays out the basics, and even the mighty Martin Grams Jr. has barely a paragraph on it in unlocking the door to a television classic. I even broke out Philosophy in the Twilight Zone by Carol and Hunt to see if they had a few paragraphs on it too, and they don't. So I think this time we're on our own. Now I have to comment on these opening scenes where David Gurney wakes up at home and his wife Wilma doesn't recognise him because I think these are really nicely paced, really well performed by the actors Richard Long and Shirley Ballard. The timing is just right for the comments from David towards Wilma while she's sleeping not to be too forced and the reactions are really good when things start to unfold. So great start here and a solid introduction to this mystery. When we look at the broader picture of television at that time, this is a rare instance of a married couple actually being shown in bed together or to be more precise, on the bed in David's case. Now, the first married couple to be shown in bed together on American television was some years earlier in 1947 on a show called Mary Kay and Johnny, where the two stars who were actually married in real life shared a bed. So you would think that things would have relaxed a little by the time that this Twilight Zone episode came out and... I guess they had to a degree because around this time or shortly after, shows like The Monsters and The Brady Bunch also showed couples in bed. Now in a later Twilight Zone stopover in a quiet town, there's also a scene where a fully clothed man lays on a bed with a woman after a night of drinking. So you can kind of imagine that they're justifying it to themselves in these ways that the man is still fully clothed and they've had a drink, so, you know, we'll forgive them actually wanting to sleep in the same bed together. Who the devil are you? How's that? I said, who the devil are you and what are you doing at my desk? Your desk? That's right, my desk. Now, look, I've had just about enough of this today. Get out of that chair. <sighs> do nothing of the kind. Friend, you get out of that chair or I'll throw no, you out. There's no need to get excited. After the morning I put in... Would you be kind enough to take this junk with you? It's a trouble, sir. Now, look, Jim. This little joke has gone far enough. He says this is his desk. Well, if you just step outside, sir, I think we can settle this matter. So the mystery continues, and David goes to his place of work, where, again, he's not recognised by any of his co-workers. And when he goes outside, Wilma has called the cops on him. Is that the man? Yes. What's your name, mister? Ask her. She doesn't know. She doesn't know? After 11 years of marriage and she doesn't know? Mrs. Gurney, allow me to introduce myself. I'm David Gurney, your husband, remember? Well, don't stand there staring like idiots. That's who I am, David Gurney. 
so let's briefly meet Wilma, or one of the Wilmers anyway, because we have Wilma number one played by Shirley Ballard. She was born in 1925, and between 1946 and 1976, she racked up a modest 43 credits, but at some point she seems to have had a change of career from actor to working behind the camera, because although she was born in California, at some point she has moved to Australia because she spent the best part of 20 years working as a script supervisor or continuity person there, mainly on soap operas like The Sullivans or Flying Doctors, but also on that Australian classic, Mad Max. Now to get ahead of ourselves slightly, Wilma number two, who we will meet later on, was played by Julie Van Zandt, and she was actually married to Twilight Zone director Richard Albert in the late 50s, and she was an avid angler and held the record for the biggest needlefish ever caught. So that's how starved we are of trivia on this episode, folks, that I need to resort to the biggest fish that someone ever caught. But if the season one episode Mirror Image taught us anything, it was that back in the 1960s, it didn't take much to find yourself locked up in an insane asylum, and David Gurney finds himself in one here, tended to by Dr. Kozlenko, played by Frank Silvera, who is an interesting gentleman in himself. His IMDb bio says he was a highly successful black actor-director in the 1950s and 1960s, who, because of his light-skinned appearance, transcended race and ethnicity in his performances. And in motion pictures, Frank Silvera was cast as black, Latino, Polynesian, and white stroke racially indeterminate due to black and white film stock's lack of discernment when rendering light-skinned African Americans. And he was actively engaged in the civil rights struggles in the 1950s and 60s and called on all of his associates in the theatre and film world to support the efforts of black Americans during this watershed in American history. And he's fine here, you know, there's not much to say, he's playing a doctor and he plays a doctor well, but there's one detail in these hospital scenes that I think is really well placed in this whole mystery that is unfolding here. Come with me, please. Oh, uh, you haven't met your fellow patient. That's Winston Churchill. So he thinks. Poor chap. No one knows who he really is. It's an element that not only places doubt in David Gurney's mind, but also the audience's mind too. Now what I mean by this is that up until this point, I think we're pretty much on board with David. When he's awoken, he's so certain that this is an elaborate hoax or that the cause of this is something outside of him that we go along with him because at the end of the day, he is our main character, so we kind of go on his journey. But in the hospital, the doctor introduces David to a man sitting staring off into space. A man who believes himself to be Winston Churchill. So what this achieves is by showing us someone where their delusion is clearly not true, and there's no doubt about that, and it's a delusion that comes from within themselves, it makes us wonder for the first time properly 
whether maybe David is wrong as well. Is David delusional? Because at the end of the day, not everyone with these kind of delusions is going to think themselves to be a famous person. So David could have just dreamed up a random persona as some aspect of his own illness. So not only does the episode place this element of doubt in our minds, but I think Long plays this beautifully too, this moment of doubt where he's confronted by this and he just kind of looks off for a moment, maybe pondering whether he's actually in the same boat. Is it the world that's wrong or is it actually me? All right. All right. If I'm not David Gurney, then who am I? That's what we're going to try to find out. In other words, I'm crazy. Like that guy who thinks he's Churchill. Is that what you're trying to tell me? No. Let's just say mentally disturbed. Either, either I am crazy, or somebody's going to an awful lot of trouble to blot me out. No, no, no. Why would anyone want to blot you out? How should I know? But whoever, or whatever it is, they could rig all the phone books in the world and they can pay off everyone who ever knew me, but they can't get inside my mind, Doctor. And I'll tell you something else they can't do. They can't think of everything. Suppose we go back to your room and you think about it. Oh, no, no. You think about it. Because I'm going to go out and find one of those details. Now! Now, if you're concerned that the episode was maybe a little too talky, then don't worry, it's got you covered because David spectacularly jumps through a pane of glass and steals a van outside, making his escape. You know, I think one of the things this episode gets right is the reactions of people to this situation at hand. The way David reacts to them not recognizing them and the way that they react to him. So despite the premise being fantastical, it's grounded in these understandable and natural reactions. And then David jumps through a window, so it kind of Maybe goes against that a little bit, but it's almost as if Beaumont felt it needed a bit of action and put that in there. And it is a little bit ridiculous, especially as the sound of the glass has this heaviness to it from, you know, the safety glass that's only going to break into so many pieces. But, you know, it's hard to really come down on it because it's fun as well. So while he's stealing a van and making his escape, let's meet our leading man. Richard Long plays David Gurney and he was born in 1927 so he would have been in his mid-30s at this point, the prime age for Twilight Zone leading men. He didn't grow up with any great desire to be an actor and he's quoted as saying, I had no intention of becoming an actor. I took senior drama class because it was a snap course and I needed the credit for my English requirements. In his younger days, he spent two years in the US Army during the Korean War and at one point was posted to California along with Clint Eastwood. So although he stumbled upon acting by accident, he had a fairly steady career after his debut in 1946 in the film Tomorrow is Forever. And after this appearance in The Twilight Zone, he's going to return in the episode number 12, Looks Just Like You. But further on in his career, he had two of his biggest roles in the shows The Big Valley and Nanny and the Professor. But despite being fairly successful on screen, unfortunately Richard Long's personal life was rife with tragedy and incident. 
His first wife was an actor named Suzanne Ball, who was the second cousin of Lucille Ball. In 1953, she was diagnosed with cancer that manifested in the form of cancerous tumours on her legs. Now, in January of 1954, she had a leg amputated to try and stop the spread of those tumours. And she and Richard Long were married in April of 1954, but sadly she died in 1955, at the young age of 21. But David Long did remarry in 1957, to actor and model Mara Corday, and they had three children together, but their marriage wasn't without instant either. A couple of years before this episode, apparently Mara accused him of trying to kill her while he was drunk, and Richard Long was arrested, but she declined to pursue the matter further, and they did reconcile in the end. So a couple of years before this episode was filmed, in the late 1950s, Richard Long actually had a heart attack that he did recover from, but he was a very heavy drinker and smoker, and after having several heart attacks in 1974, he unfortunately passed away in hospital. And sadly in 2008, his own son Carey passed away at the young age of 50, having inherited his dad's heart problems. And I think Richard Long does a really good job in the episode. I don't think he's a, a quirky actor. I don't think he's, you know, matinee handsome. He does have a, a kind of handsomeness about him and he's got these big, bright, expressive eyes. So he does have something going for him. But So he's pretty unamazing in some ways. But I think where he excels is just a good, solid performance and a believability in his reactions to everything that's going on. Look at me. Okay, I'm looking at you. Who am I? How many guesses do I get? Huh? No, think, Sam. Who comes in here every Friday night for the last three years? My wife. Who else? Oh, a lot of people come in here. What about... What about Dave Gurney? Who? In the next scene, David goes to his local bar and he meets probably one of the best bartending actors I've ever seen. The character of the bartender is called Sam Baker, but the credit in the episode goes to an actor called Edmund Glover, when as a matter of fact, the actor who really plays Sam is called Harry Swoger. And you might remember Harry Swoger from the episode Dead Man's Shoes, where he plays the homeless guy who is giving Dane a hard time. Quite why Harry Swoger was miscredited in Person or Persons Unknown I don't know, because he and the actual actor Edmund Glover look nothing alike, and I don't think Edmund Glover was actually ever in an episode of The Twilight Zone either, so it's quite baffling how this has become the case. Well, Doctor, what brings you here? I might ask you the same question. If you really wanted to elude us, you know, you shouldn't have left that stolen car downstairs. This <laughs> man owes me money. Oh. $1.81 to be exact, and you know what for, Doctor? Proof that I'm not crazy. I told you they couldn't think of everything, and I was right. I suppose you found a signature or a oh, receipt or something? Oh, but that wouldn't be proof, would it, Doctor? Because I could have signed a signature any time. Right. Or had a card printed up or faked a driver's license. Right. But what about a photograph, Doctor? What about a photograph of me holding hands with a girl who claims she never laid eyes on me before this morning? How would you explain that? What? I, I saw her. 
So in his quest for the truth, David visits a photographer's office and here is the show's only concession up to this point that there are forces at work here outside of David himself. Because right now David could be delusional, but he finds a picture in the office of Wilma and him together, which shows that it's not actually the case. But that picture doesn't actually last long, and when the doctor who he met earlier in the hospital comes to confront him, it's changed to show only him on it, and Wilma has disappeared. And David finally breaks down and wakes up in bed, like he did at the start of the episode. Except this time, our twist is revealed, and it's Wilma who has changed, and she's now a different woman. Honey, what's wrong? Are you ill? Dave, why are you looking at me like that? Dave, honey? So it leaves things quite wonderfully open-ended. You know, is Wilma now going to be unrecognisable to everyone she knows? Or is everyone in David's life now going to be different from how he remembers them? And there are probably several other possibilities too. So a good solid twist to cap things off for us. Now I played that clip from Seinfeld at the beginning of the show where Jerry describes the situation from this episode to his friends and then he says that all Twilight Zones are kind of like that. And while we know that that's not really true, I think there is an aspect of person or persons unknown that is so Twilight Zone that it is almost like a caricature of the Twilight Zone. Now I have to admit, I have struggled a little with this one, finding something to really hang my hat on, some angle on it. And it's not just that there's no trivia to bolster the episode with, but while the whole thrust of the episode is about identity and what happens when that is taken away, what's it really saying beyond, here's what happens when you take it away? There's no real moments of character beyond his search for the truth, which is fine, that's no bad thing at all. And I actually really, really like this episode. I think Richard Long is a fine lead and everyone in it is quite genuine and grounded. It's a Twilight Zone with no cosmic justice aspect. And again, there are plenty of them like that, so that's okay. But for me, this is a pure distillation of one particular aspect of the Twilight Zone. I think it shares that space in the fifth dimension with episodes like Shadow Play or Mirror Image, episodes that put aside moralizing and just tell us that sometimes strange things happen for seemingly no reason at all. Why Person or Persons Unknown doesn't quite have the profile of something like Shadow Play is that by the time this one comes around, I think in a sense it's not really breaking any new ground or doing it any better than something like Shadow Play or Mirror Image. So I think there is a little bit of a sense of we've seen something like this before and this isn't necessarily doing it any better. But like I said, I think that's a really minor criticism. I don't think it detracts in any way from this being a really good, solid, enjoyable episode of The Twilight Zone. There is, I suppose, a bit of a sad irony to it in that this episode is so wrapped up in loss of identity for this character 
and we realize that even if we know ourselves, in a way we don't exist if other people don't know us. If other people don't have the memories of what you've shared together, if other people won't let you access aspects of your life because they don't remember who you are, then essentially you are wiped away. And sadly for our writer Charles Beaumont, a kind of reverse of that situation ended up being true. And his son Christopher Beaumont said in an interview that I found on rodsailing.com, my fondest memories of my father include the raw excitement that possessed his being when he had an idea that he wanted to share with the family, some trip he planned in the last five minutes, and for which we should prepare to leave in the next 15. The saddest memory is watching the light in his eyes begin to slowly dim as he disappeared into Alzheimer's. Now I'm not sure at what point Charles Beaumont's Twilight Zone work began to be affected by his condition, but perhaps we'll find that out as we go along. But I do really love this particular brand of Twilight Zone strangeness of which Charles Beaumont was the master. You know, when there's a cosmic justice aspect to the show, we the audience can at least sit back comfortable in the knowledge that we were never the captain of a German U-boat that fired on defenseless people, or one of the other Twilight Zone indiscretions. So, we'll all be okay. But with these episodes, where there is no cosmic justice, just seemingly random strangeness, nobody is okay. Everyone has the potential to find themselves affected by the unknown, and everyone has the potential to find themselves in the Twilight Zone. A case of mistaken identity or a nightmare turned inside out. A simple loss of memory or the end of the world. David Gurney may never find the answer, but you can be sure he's looking for it in the Twilight Zone. So that was Person or Persons Unknown. And, uh, you know, a bit of a strange one, really, because it's a really good episode of The Twilight Zone, but there's just not much written about it by our usual main commentators. So hopefully you enjoyed it anyway. But to give you a little extra value in your podcast this time, a really good friend of the show, Gus Halwerda, has sent in a report from a night gallery exhibit that happened in L.A., and I think at the time of recording, it's still going on. But sadly, um, by the time this goes out, I think it's ended. But hopefully, we can share in a little bit of its magic with Gus. So let's go over to Gus to see what he thought of that night gallery exhibit. Hi, Tom. Gus here. Not exactly Twilight Zone related, but a few nights ago, I was able to attend the Night Gallery 50th Anniversary Art Exhibit Reception, and I thought I would send you a little trip report on it. The event was put together by the guys at peekaboogallery.com and creaturefeatures.com, and was held inside the Mountain View Mausoleum, uh, which is a beautiful, creepy, gothic locale from the 1800s in Altadena, California, and it's a historical building that is open to the public. When I arrived, I was initially quite impressed. They had some appropriately kooky, creepy music playing through the halls that set the mood pretty well. I entered and made my way up the stairs, and I was met with a handful of paintings on easels, all familiar images from the show. They were either on easels or just propped up between urns, 
I think they were actually real urns from the mausoleum. After passing a good 15 or 20 images, I made my way into the main gallery. On one wall, there were the works of Jerry Gaber, who only provided paintings for the Night Gallery pilot, but also for the Sixth Sense series, which was packaged with Night Gallery when it went into syndication, which is a strange story of its own since Serling came back to record intros for those episodes, even though he had no involvement with that show at all. But the other wall was dedicated to the work of Tom Wright, who single-handedly created all of the myriad of paintings for the show's main run. And he also created an original piece for this exhibit, which was sort of a collage of images from the series, which was interesting, but not at all in the vein of his work for the show, if you know what I mean. There were also bits of metal statuary scattered throughout which appeared in the series, and those were created by Phil Vanderlei. And if one was inclined to drink alcohol while viewing the art, there was also a small nook labeled Tim Riley's Bar set up for the reception where one could imbibe concoctions with clever names like The Sin Eater and The Caterpillar and, my favorite, Green Fingers. Now, I said I was initially quite impressed, and that's because, upon closer examination, it turned out that almost all of the Tom Wright paintings throughout the exhibit, and Gaber's Night Gallery paintings as well, were not actually the original paintings but prints, or duplicates. This is, apparently, because many of the paintings are either lost, or the owners were not willing to lend them to the exhibit, so... While it was pretty cool to see any large quality print of the originals up close, I guess I was hoping for more, and found it a little bit of a letdown not to be seeing so many of the originals. That said, I think there were probably about 14 or so actual original paintings on display from the series. And I will admit, I'm only an amateur art lover, but seeing the actual paint on the actual canvas just a few inches away made all the difference. Seeing that detail as opposed to the 480p resolution image of a DVD disc somehow legitimately increased my appreciation of the series. Those 14 paintings alone made the event worthwhile. Even if <laughs> the ones on display were often paintings from my very least favorite episodes. The originals on display were from Little Girl Lost, The Dead Man, Brenda, The Other Way Out, Lone Survivor, Deliveries in the Rear, Something in the Woodwork, Fright Night, The Boy Who Predicted Earthquakes, The Flip Side of Satan, Room for One Less, The Deer Departed, Die Now Pay Later, and The Caterpillar. The other thing that made the night magical was the presence of the artist himself, Mr. Tom Wright. For anyone who is unfamiliar, Tom got his start on television doing these paintings, but went on to have a pretty amazing career as a director and producer of television. He worked on a ton of shows including X-Files, Millennium, Space Above and Beyond, and more recently shows like NCIS and Supernatural. Quite a number of the cast and crew from those shows were also in attendance, which added to the fun. I fist-bumped Mark Harmon, who I grew up watching on Moonlighting. One conspicuous absence was the director Guillermo del Toro, who is famously a superfan of the show, and the last time they held such a showing of night gallery paintings, he was on hand to buy up as many as he could, including the crucifixion image from the Escape Route episode, which he purchased for a reported $31,000. From what I could gather, he was expected to be in attendance, and his paintings were also expected to appear, but Mr. Del Toro's home was one that was damaged in the recent California fires, and it's unclear at this time to what extent that damage might have affected the Night Gallery paintings in his collection, so hopefully we will know in time. Probably the biggest disappointment for me was the lack of available prints for sale. I know it's silly, but I had been told they would have a huge, if not complete, catalog of stock available, but when I asked, they were reluctant to inform me that just about every image I was in search of was not on hand. 
Apparently, they hope to have more at some point in the future, but that night I was unable to get a single one that I came in for, so... Um, but the guys from Creature Features were solid folks and offered to keep in touch as their stock comes in, so fingers crossed on that. The event runs through February 10th, 2019, and if any of your listeners are fans of Serling's admittedly less beloved series, I would still recommend checking out the artwork. Seeing those haunting, dreamlike images just a few inches away gave me a chill I wasn't really expecting, but one I think Serling certainly intended. Back to you, Tom. Not for the first time I have wished that I was in the US for some sort of uh, Twilight Zone or Rod Sailing event. It sounds fantastic, and thank you so much, Gus, for sending that in. Now, now Gus has recently started his own podcast, and it's called the Jeremy Brett Sherlock Holmes Podcast. Now, I don't know how much of a thing this was in the US, but there was a television series in the UK, I think back in the 80s, about Sherlock Holmes, of course, starring Jeremy Brett. And it's a really highly thought of show. Some think it's kind of like the definitive Sherlock Holmes on screen in a lot of ways from from what I've heard. And Gus is a big fan of it. And I'm always kind of interested the way Americans react to me commentating on you know, one of their landmark shows, this great American institution, The Twilight Zone, and everyone's been great about it. So it's really interesting to hear an American perspective on this very British show. So it's called the Jeremy Brett Sherlock Holmes Podcast, and you can find it on iTunes or at the website sherlockpodcast.com. So thanks so much for that, Gus. Thanks for that report, and uh, best of luck with the podcast. Okay, so let's catch up on some listener emails and submitted for your approval. I've had an email from a very good friend of the show, Andrew, and he says, Dear Tom, I saw Poltergeist first as a teenager many years before I discovered Little Girl Lost. I've wondered for years about the similarities between the two. I really enjoyed your explanation, though it left me disappointed with Steven Spielberg for not fairly compensating Richard Matheson for his original idea. It's all the more unfortunate because if Spielberg had brought Matheson on board, the two might have created what amounted to a full-length movie worthy of the Twilight Zone name. Nothing against Poltergeist, which still terrifies me, but the concept of a child falling through a hole into the fourth dimension strikes me as more fitting for Twilight Zone than that of a haunted house. Ordinarily, I wouldn't write so soon after my last email, but I just had a wonderful conversation I had to share. My parents recently flew down for a visit. While we were out for dinner, somehow the subject of Rod Serling came up. My father started talking about patterns and requiem for a heavyweight. Then he told me about how he'd been a fan of Twilight Zone during its original run, how he'd watched The Lonely in 1959 and gotten hooked immediately. He told me his favourite episode was To Save Man and how much the ending threw him when he first saw it. He described the other episodes he especially enjoyed which I recognised as time enough at last. The Odyssey of Flight 33 Printer's Devil, He's Alive, and An Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge. The only one he couldn't stand, Eye of the Beholder. My father also told me about how, when he was a student at Cornell, 
The campus newspaper would occasionally include notices about sailing giving talks on campus. Unfortunately, my dad never attended one. That's all for now. Keep up the great work, Andrew. Thank you, Andrew. Man, what a missed opportunity. What a, what a real shame that was, I guess. You know, it just goes to show we've got to jump on those opportunities when we have them because, you know, he might have thought, oh, I'll catch him next time. And unfortunately, that next time never came. Thanks for writing in, Andrew. Okay, great friend of the show, Al, wrote in and he said, Hi, Tom, I'm so impressed by the way you've been putting out so much quality work in such a short time. Thank you, Al. Uh, I don't really have anything of substance to say, just wanted to express my appreciation. When you said you were dreading doing The Fugitive, I thought that it was because you disliked the episode. It never occurred to me that there could be any interpretation of paedophilia here, but I can see it now, and it was something that had to be discussed. I'm sure Beaumont had no intention of promoting that, but it doesn't mean it isn't there. Some people react negatively to imposing modern sensibilities on past artwork, but changing mores often expose hidden flaws in past social contracts and imposing those mores on the past does not invalidate the worth of those older artworks. Vertigo can still be considered the best film of all time, even while we become aware of the horrible manipulative way women are treated in that film, something that may have passed unnoticed in 1958. Still, it becomes a difficult thing to map out these days, and you did a brilliant job with The Fugitive. The subtext can be seen nowadays, but at the same time, as Katie's clip that you played in the Little Girl Lost episode demonstrated, you can still watch it innocently as a fairy tale. And he says, by the way, your next episode, Person or Persons Unknown, is one of my favourites, but is not usually mentioned by people. You can say that again, Al. I'm trying to remember at what point Beaumont's work gets supplemented or completely done by his friends because of his mental deterioration. Have we come to that time? Um, like I said, I'm not too sure, Al. I'm hoping that when we do get to that time, um, the main commentators will kind of point that out and we can, we can discuss that when we get there. And he says, best, Al. So, thank you, Al. You know, I mean, the whole thing about The Fugitive, uh, you know, it, it is what it is, I guess. And, and thank you for, and thank you for writing in, in, you know, your usual measured and intelligent way about the whole thing, because, you know, people can very much get that way, I think. So in a way, you kind of dread bringing it up on the podcast because you're like, man, are people going to get so offended by this? But, but you know, it, it's interesting to see, you know, how the world has changed around an episode as well. And, and as Katie has shown, um, you know, she can still latch onto it as this, um, this magical fairy tale thing. But, you know, there's nothing wrong with... Um, looking at the, the sort of bigger aspects of it too, how the world has changed around the Twilight Zone, as you quite rightly pointed out. So, you know, luckily I've had mainly thoughts from people like you and like Katie who are, you know, intelligent and measured and don't get all bent out of shape when something like that comes up. So thank you, Al. Okay, I've had an email from good friend of the show, Fief, and he says, Hey, Fief Sutton here. I've been listening to the old podcasts and the new podcasts. I was very happy when you got to one of my all-time favourite episodes, Little Girl Lost. It's one of Matheson's best. Bravo. I also wanted to ask you something about the after hours. Forgive me if you covered this. 
But have you ever read the John Collier story Evening Primrose published in 1940? If not, you should certainly check it out and perhaps do a reading of it for the podcast. I won't give it away, but it was surely an influence on sailing when he wrote After Hours. It was also adapted to a musical television play by none other than Stephen Sondheim in 1966 and features the unforgettable song I Remember Sky. Keep up the good work and I dedicate this comment to René, and I can't pronounce that last name, Garajenk maybe, who composed the wonderful piece Street Moods in Jazz, which you often feature as the theme to submitted for your approval, and was used extensively on Perry Mason, but is often thought of as the score to the Twilight Zone episode, The Fever. Good work, René, and good work, Tom. Well, good work to you too, Fief. Thank you. Thanks for writing in, and we'll um, dedicate this one to René, even though I can't pronounce his last name. Now, I never actually covered the After Hours myself. That was Luke. Uh, back in the day because I wasn't on the podcast at that point so I haven't commented on it I will be commenting on it in the Twilight Zone podcast Another Dimension which is over on Patreon where I'm covering those episodes that I missed but even in Primrose yeah I've just checked it out and you can you can really see that there's potentially a connection there but what a great story you know so I, I will definitely put that one to one side for now and perhaps come back to it in the future so thank you for pointing that out for me Fief. Okay I've had an email from Pat and he commented on a colorized version of miniature that existed that I think he saw on television in the past. He says just as a quick follow-up on my previous message I got interested in finding more info on the special I watched and was surprised to find facts on the show were not readily available. After some research, I found it was titled Twilight Zone Silver Anniversary Special, which puts it in the 80s and not the 90s like I originally thought. It was hosted by Patrick O'Neill, who starred in A Short Drink from a Certain Fountain. I couldn't find the special listed on O'Neill's IMDb page. I imagine the colorization was considered transformative. So any broadcast or inclusion in compilations would mean a third party would be expecting payment and thus it's less of a problem to just use the pure black and white episode. Since the Twilight Zone is still an actively protected copyright property, any full posting of the colorized episode would get pulled down as soon as it's noticed. The colorized miniature has become a lost version of a lost episode. Thanks again, Pat. Pat, thank you so much for that. You have... You've mentioned a, a bit of a trigger phrase there for me, lost. You know, whenever anything's lost, people just want to find it. And now I kind of want to find this Twilight Zone silver anniversary special. So what better place and what better people to ask than you, the Twilight Zone podcast audience? Have you got it sitting on a videotape somewhere with, with this colorized version of miniature? If anyone has got it out there and they can convert it to some sort of digital medium, then do let me know. It'd be fascinating to take a look at that but thank you Pat thanks for bringing that up and um, you know maybe this will be the start of hunting that down and trying to get hold of it for everyone okay so that's our listener emails if you want to get in touch with me then email me at tom at the twilight zone podcast.com and you can send me an email or a short mp3 clip two to three minutes long get your voice on the show and tell us what you think of our next episode or a past episode you're always welcome. Now, 
I also want to thank a few people as well. I want to thank uh, Mark Allen Ward, who is a new Patreon supporter, and your episode is The Fugitive. I hope that's okay, Mark. You know, no comment on what I said about it. If you want me to change it, let me know, and I'll do that. And uh, also Nathan Sanders, and your episode is Little Girl Lost, and thank you for your support as well. And if anyone out there wants to support the show on Patreon, then please do and go to patreon.com slash Podcast and get some bonus content, uh, including those including those missing 2014 episodes of the Twilight Zone podcast. Um, and the chaser is already up and the next one will be up at the end of this month or beginning of the next I also want to thank a couple of people as well. Um, long-time friend of the show, Chad, uh, made a, a big one-off contribution towards my Binghamton fund. And thank you, Chad. You know, you've been a really staunch ally of the Twilight Zone podcast for a long time now, and I, I really appreciate it. So thank you. And I also want to thank several patrons who, hearing that I wanted to go to Binghamton for the 60th, anniversary celebration have either increased their pledges you know maybe just for one month or you know increased it by a buck or two just to kind of top things up and there's too many to mention but please know that I have noticed and I do appreciate it so thank you so much and then I also want to thank Dane Bowerman now Dane, a few people have done this. They've said, Tom, we want to support your Binghamton trip and they've sent a one-off donation and I've been really kind of blown away by people's generosity and Dane is just another one of those people where I've just, I've woken up in the morning because the time difference, you know, I, I usually wake up to emails from people in the States who have emailed me and uh, Dane made this this incredible donation and uh, it's thanks to him and all these people who have sort of put a couple of extra bucks in on Patreon that, you know, I, I now have enough for my flight to New York to go to the 60th anniversary celebration. Now, the Rod Sailing Memorial Foundation has a, have announced the dates for Sailing Fest 2019, and they are the 4th, 5th and 6th of October in Binghamton. So... Thanks to people like Dane and his amazingly generous uh, donation and, and everyone who has supported me so far. It's now, barring, you know, some sort of gremlin on the wing, I will be at the, at the 60th anniversary celebration. So, you know, I am humbled and I am grateful and I thank everyone so much for doing that. Um, it's tentative. I have been asked by someone at the foundation whether I would like to be involved in some way. So we will see how that develops. But, you know, that might be a great opportunity if I am on a panel or something like that to say, I'm going to be at this panel at a particular time. And then, you know, it'll be a great way of, of all the people who've said they're going to come along. I can say, well, come to this panel. Then afterwards we can you know we can all get together and meet you know that's all in the pipeline so we will see i will keep you updated on that but thank you so much dane and thank you to everyone who has contributed and uh, hopefully it's binghamton or bust and last but not least i want to thank new itunes reviewers brandade 64 and norman finker b 
Bean Clachance. You made me work for that one, Norman, but thank you for your kind reviews, guys, and I really appreciate it. And if anyone has a few minutes to leave an iTunes review, I would really appreciate that. Now, the next episode is going to be an interview. It's not going to be the one I mentioned last time round. It's going to be something different, and it's going to be something of particular interest to British Twilight Zone fans for now, but down the line, probably American Twilight Zone fans too. So keep your ears open for that one, and I will speak to you next time. Goodbye for now. Throw. Keep America clean and beautiful.